Uh, Heavenly Father, we do pray you could help us now, help us to know how your word speaks into our lives, uh, whether we are feeling buoyant and on top of the world or walking into this church tonight, um, feeling unsure and feeling really broken. We do pray your word would speak into our hearts. Help us to see Christ from it, Lord. Amen. Uh, So this evening, we're going to be looking at Sabbath stories and servant songs. That's what this passage is all about, Sabbath stories and servant songs. It's like a tongue twister, but um, I've practiced a little bit. In the Sabbath stories, we're going to be seeing some of the religious leaders confront Jesus, telling him that he and his disciples are breaking the Sabbath rules by seeking to love people. Then at the end of the story, we get a quote from Isaiah. It's from a song about a servant, and it shows us Jesus' heart and why he loves the broken and the needy. So our first of those Sabbath stories is about rest. And and the first thing we hear in this one is, it says, at that time, so what time was that? Well, it seems like Matthew really wants us to get that this story and the last story are connected, because the last thing we heard were those famous words when Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me, because I am lowly, humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. That beautiful and great call to rest in Jesus. So now it says at that time, at the time Jesus made that great call, what do we read? It says at that time Jesus passed through the grain fields on the Sabbath. So that time was the Sabbath. It was a day of rest for God's people, the seventh day where God rested. The time when Jesus was talking about rest for your souls was on the Sabbath. And we read that his disciples were hungry, they began to pick some heads of grain. So they're just having a stroll in the cornfields, but like a scene from North by Northwest, out of nowhere, some enemies emerge set on destroying them. Very relevant reference I get, it's 1960 or something, but I like the movie. But it says, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, see your disciples are doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath. Which has to beg the question, what were the Pharisees doing hiding in the cornfields? Uh, It almost feels like the Pharisees are from a Roadrunner cartoon, setting a trap with a pie, waiting for Jesus to fall into it. They're like a couple of parking inspectors jumping out from behind a bush saying, aha, you've broken the law. Uh, And I don't know if you've ever thought um, God's law isn't quite enough for you. I wish God made a law for absolutely every specific situation so I could never be in any doubt as to what's right and what's wrong. Well, if that's you, the Pharisees would have been right up your alley because they thought the Old Testament law wasn't exhaustive enough. Even in the area of work, they came up with 39 different categories of forbidden work. And harvesting was one of them. So this law the disciples were breaking, it actually isn't from the Old Testament. It's one of the laws they came up with to try to help God out, to try to help God be a bit more clear. And the irony was, what was actually taught in the Old Testament was for people to leave grain on the edges of their field so that the poor and the hungry could eat. And this showed God's compassion for those people in need which raises the question, is it lawful or not to show compassion on the Sabbath? 
And Jesus says, if you have to ask that question, that's already the problem. The entire point of the Old Testament law is to show love for God and love for neighbor. But if you create a law that makes love illegal, well, then that's going to be an issue. And Jesus' response is interesting because Jesus, he could have just said, that isn't in the law, that's your own law that you've made up, you hypocrites. But he doesn't. And Jesus could have said, your exegesis is off, here are all the relevant texts about the Sabbath so you can understand it better, uh, but he doesn't. Instead, he says something so much more bold and more confronting. He says, haven't you read what David did when he and those who were with him were hungry? How he entered the house of God, they ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him or those with him to eat, but only for the priests. So he's saying by the letter of the law, David broke the law, but the Bible doesn't condemn him. But, but of course, he's absolutely not saying, well, David broke the law, so it's fine if I do too. Uh, so what is he saying? Well, Jesus is saying David and the priests, they both worked on the Sabbath, Therefore, they profaned the Sabbath, but they were innocent because of who they were. And my disciples are innocent because of who I am. David could do it because he was David, and so can I, because I'm the Son of Man. Jesus, he's claiming to be at least David's equal. But that's not enough. He goes even further. He actually says, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So he really knows how to get in people's good books. He says, I'm better than the temple, I'm better than David, I understand the Old Testament better than you, and the cherry on the cake, he says, you're lecturing me on the Sabbath, can't you see that it's my Sabbath, I created it in the first place. So after Serena and I, uh, we moved into our little unit in Maruka, we thought we'd better check out some of the local cuisine. Uh, we went to one of the Ethiopian restaurants, we sat down at the table, waited a bit, uh, looked at the menu, a man walked in from outside, uh, he stood next to our table, he didn't say anything, we kind of just poured over the menu. Uh, he looked down, pointed at something and said, I think you will like that. And Serena said, uh, do you come here often? And, of course, he said, I am the owner. That's kind of what's happening here, the kind of awkwardness that's happening here. The Pharisees, they're talking to the owner of the Sabbath, but they don't even realize it. When he tells you what's good, you can listen to him. And Jesus, he just said, come to me and I will give you rest. So you can trust that this rest is good. And the Pharisees, they're promoting their own version of rest, but Jesus says, that's not the real rest my Sabbath was pointing to. Their version of rest is a heavy yoke, it's a heavy burden of following their laws to try to justify yourself before God. That's not what the rest is. Jesus, he gives us a better rest from that. So that's Sabbath story one. Uh, Sabbath story number two is about restoration. And we read that, moving on from there, Jesus enters their synagogue. So from a stroll in the cornfields, now it, Jesus, he steps onto the home turf of the Pharisees. And notice it says, their synagogue. 
It's like Jesus thought, oh, that's what you've turned my Sabbath into. I kind of want to check out what this looks like when it plays out in your church. And as Jesus often does, the first person he sees is the last person most of us would see. It says, there he saw a man who had a shriveled hand. Now, this poor man, he was probably sitting at the back of the synagogue in the shadows. Uh, but what, the, what did the Pharisees say? In order to accuse him, they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Because again, in their extracurricular laws, the Pharisees taught that it was only permitted to heal someone on the Sabbath if what they were going through was life-threatening. Now, this guy, he'd probably been living with a shriveled hand for years. So Jesus, why not just wait another day when it's not the Sabbath? Then you can heal this guy just fine and not break the law. But again, Jesus, he marvels at just how much they're abusing the Sabbath when he replies, who among you, if you had a sheep and it fell into a pit, wouldn't drag it out of the pit? How much more worth is a person than a sheep? So it is lawful to do what is good on the Sabbath. The Sabbath is for rest. It's for restoration. If you forbid rest and restoration because you classify them as work, that's not just a misunderstanding. That shows the hardness of your hearts. It shows your lack of love. And love was the heart of the law. Now, a few weeks ago, I watched this film, A Man Called Otto with the great Tom Hanks. Uh, if you've seen it, you'll know Otto was a very grumpy old man. Uh, he was a retired engineer. No offense, any engineers here. Uh, but he was very grumpy because he hadn't worked through any of the grief from his earlier life. Uh, but what was funny in the film, there was a repeated refrain. Constantly, people would save his life, but Otto would be grumpy at them and angry at them because they were breaking the law in doing so. The first the first time this happens, someone saves his life, but they're parked in a no parking zone, and so Otto's furious. He's become so obsessed with his own system of rules that it's kind of funny, but he's become so obsessed with his system of rules that he's forgotten about love. But I think we can kind of relate to this even if we aren't retired engineers, uh, because I think we all have this tendency in ourselves for us to create our own rules that can blind us to love for others, even if it can play out pretty differently in all of us. I think one obvious factor is personality. Uh, there are a lot of ways you can think about it or describe it. Uh, just the thing I came up with, I know they're not great terms, but we'll just work with them, are linear thinkers and elastic thinkers. Linear thinkers being more the rules, letter of the law types, elastic thinkers being more the I'm sure it's fine, types. The danger for linear thinkers is legalism, but the danger for elastic thinkers is being too widely embracing, tending not to think of anything as sin. And both can tend towards very different expectations of the Christian life and of church. For linear thinkers, in seeking to be faithful, they tend towards careful reading of the Bible, morally ordered lives, they tend to value tradition and history, Maybe they prefer more liturgical services with more structure, with the words of their prayers given to them. They tend to value the words in church songs more than the sound or the feel of the songs. Whereas elastic thinkers in seeking to be faithful, 
They tend towards the practical and the relevant. The Bible always has to be doing something, speaking into our lives and situations here and now. They value empathy and creativity. They're less fussed about tradition. Everything about church services has to be organic. Prayers need to be personal from the heart. And for them, church music, it needs to be filled with life and spirit. Now, they're very broad categories. They might be um, yeah, true to you, unhelpful, I'm not quite sure. And I, but I realize um, I'm saying this because Pharisees tend to, in our minds, always be from column A, kind of the highest order of linear, moral, major thinkers. Uh, but I read a quote this week uh, that I thought was pretty helpful uh, from a guy called George Barner from a research group studying uh, Christianity in America. And I think it uh, can be a pretty helpful to us as well uh, and help us to think differently about uh, that expectation. He says this. He says, we desire experience more than knowledge. We prefer choices to absolutes. We embrace preferences rather than truths. We seek comfort rather than growth. Faith must come on our terms or we reject it. We've enthroned ourselves as the final arbiters of righteousness, the ultimate rulers of our own experience and destiny. We are the Pharisees of the new millennium. Now, I realize that one stings a bit. Uh, when I read that, it, I had to think long and hard about what that meant for my life. But I think it speaks into this passage because it's saying to us, uh, Pharisees, they don't have to be the old and crusty, linear thinking Pharisees we used to, morally uptight, morally upright. This is a new kind of Pharisee and one who's a little bit too close for comfort for a lot of us. Instead of laws and rules and trying to preserve tradition and moral purity, these new Pharisees, they're uncompromising about emotions and experience. Instead of self-righteousness being their narcotic, self-expression is their narcotic. And the challenge is, according to Barna, and I think he's got a point, this new Phariseeism can be just as dangerous as the old one. Now, I want to be clear, neither of these tendencies is wrong in itself or better than the other, even. I think a lot of it is just personality, how God's actually wired us differently. That's a good thing. But whatever your personality and tendency is, whether it's towards linear or elastic thinking or both or somewhere in the middle, our sinful hearts, they can use either to draw lines in the sand and to judge those on the other side as being less faithful. The details of the Christian life become more important than love and affection for Christ. Because like I pointed out for both, they were both seeking to be faithful. And there are many churches at either end of the spectrum that are faithful churches. I don't think either is inherently more faithful but the danger is when the rules of either side are raised above love. As to what these rules can be, um, there are the obvious ones, like when people complain about kids making noise in church or when a church service is so liturgical and rigid that anyone who's walking into church might feel completely lost and not welcomed. It's a little bit easier to see that that might be a problem. Uh, but on the opposite side, and something that's more maybe a danger for us at Village, uh, the danger is more for us creating our own rules of authenticity, organic church life that we won't compromise about. When someone preaches a talk and it doesn't make us feel any positive emotions, we can be so quick 
to write it off. When church music is more simple and less emotive, we can be so quick to write it off. When someone new comes to church and we meet them, they might even be a faithful Christian, but we might assess them as not very emotionally intelligent, not very empathetic, then we put them in the, I'm not going to go out of my way to talk to them again, basket. And we can be just as guilty of not loving those who fail to follow our rules and just as much of a Pharisee as anyone in this story, which is a scary thought. Because if you look at how this story finishes, uh, their blindness to their own hearts is staggering. It says, Jesus told the man, stretch out your hand, so he stretched it out, it was restored, good as new. But the Pharisees, they went out and plotted against him how they might kill him. Jesus, he's just said, he's Lord of the Sabbath. He knew the Sabbath was intended for rest and restoration. So he did that. He helped his disciples be fed. He restored a man's hand. But the Pharisees, they're so blinded by their own laws that they think the Sabbath is a great day to trap people. The Sabbath is for healing and rest, but to weaponize it as a means to kill. That is the ultimate and tragic irony. But that brings us to our last section, our servant songs. Um, well, after two Sabbath stories where we saw the Pharisees try to condemn Jesus for breaking the rules to love people, now we find out why. Because we get a servant song to help us understand Jesus' heart, to help us understand why his heart loved those and was drawn to those who were in need. And we hear about Jesus withdrawing because he knew the Pharisees had plotted his death. But still the crowds followed him. He healed them all. But it says, he warned them not to make him known so that what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Then we get a quote from a song. Uh, it's a song from the book of Isaiah where it's almost like Isaiah is a budding folk singer. This is his debut EP called Servant Songs. Uh, because from chapters 40 to 55 of Isaiah, there are four songs kind of in the middle of everything else about this servant. And these are the lyrics to the first song. I feel like I should get you to stand up and start singing it, but that might be interesting. Uh, but the, the lyrics are, it says, Here is my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him. He will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not argue or shout. No one will hear his voice in the streets. He will not break a bruised reed. He will not put out a smoldering wick until he has led justice to victory. The nations will put their hope in his name. So this was who Isaiah was writing about. Jesus was the spirit-filled Messiah. But how did he show that he was the spirit-filled Messiah? In quietness, in trust, in love. Even when the most powerful people in town were plotting his death, Jesus, he wasn't loud. He didn't try and defend himself. People, they would have heard about him. They would have heard he was in town. They would have asked each other, well, which one's Jesus again? Because he wouldn't have stood out. There's nothing about his appearance that was special. Now, there's a lot of, lot of gold in that song. We could spend a lot of time on it, but I just want to focus on one line there where it says, he will not break a bruised reed, he will not put out a smoldering wick. Because after hearing these two Sabbath stories about rest for the weary, restoration for the broken, now we read, he will not break a bruised reed, he will not put out a smoldering wick. Um, so, what does that mean? 
well, a bruised reed, it's a reed that's so close to breaking in two, it's hanging by a thread. It means it's alive, but only just. And what's a smouldering wick? It's talking about a candlelight that's so barely lit, it's starting to go up in smoke, it's about to go out. And if that's talking about you, this song is saying to you, Jesus, he's so gentle, he's so tender. No matter how bruised you might be feeling, Jesus will never allow the last shoots of life in you to go out. He will care for you. That's why we got those first two stories, because this is Jesus' heart. His heart goes out to the broken and the weak, the spirit of Jesus. It's a spirit of tenderness and comfort for those who are broken and weak, for the hungry, for those in pain. The Lord is near the brokenhearted. So what's that for you at the moment? Um, It's a silly question almost to say, what's your withered hand? But what's that thing that feels broken in you? Maybe it's clearly visible to the world. Maybe you do everything you can to keep it hidden from the world. But Jesus being Jesus, when he looks at you, what is he drawn to? Your chronic fatigue, your hidden depression, your broken heart. And if you're feeling weary, if it's just too exhausting trying to patch yourself up to be good enough for God, to patch yourself up to leave the house, to carry the opinions of other people, if life always feels like it's lived on a steep incline, always uphill, then you're Jesus' priority. Jesus came for the bruised reeds. But Jesus didn't just come to give us rest now or restore us now. Ultimately, he would give us this eternal rest, eternal restoration. And actually, in the fourth servant song in Isaiah, we get a picture of this. It says, He bore our sicknesses, he was carrying our pain, but we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God, afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed for our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him. By his wounds, you are healed. So Jesus, he was the greater temple who would become the sacrifice for his people as well. Jesus, he was the servant of Isaiah, but he was also the suffering servant who would be pierced for our rebellion so that we could be healed by his wounds. And that's where this is all heading. The Pharisees, they're starting to plot for Jesus' death on the cross. That shadow's already hanging over the book. And it's on that cross where Jesus dies for our sin, where he would bring about the ultimate rest, the ultimate restoration to everyone who calls on his name. And we don't need to live up to any standard or any laws that are set upon us to receive this. We just need to call on Jesus' name out of our brokenness, out of our need. And Jesus delights to answer that. But just to wrap up, there's a book by Richard Sibbs called The Bruised Reed. Um, That's right, he wrote an entire book on this verse. Uh, But there's a passage from the book that I found incredibly helpful and encouraging to myself. I kind of adapted it as a bit of a prayer. Um, So just pray with me as I pray through uh, his words from that book uh, as we wrap up. So let me pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we look forward to the day when your Son, Jesus Christ, will declare to all the world what he is, and then there shall be no glory but that of Christ and his church. Those of us who are as smouldering wicks now shall then shine as the sun, 
and be brought forth as the noonday. We ask that this would be great consolation for us poor and weak Christians. Even if we feel like fears and doubts hinder the breaking out of this fire, we know that in the end Christ will prevail and we praise you for that. In the morning we often see clouds gather about the sun as if they would hide it, but the sun overcomes them little by little till it comes to full strength. So Father, please uphold us by your grace in the hope of the sun breaking out. May your grace conquer us and we by it conquer all else, whether sins within us or temptations from outside us. By your spirit, help us to know that a spark from heaven, though kindled under wood that sobs and smokes, will one day consume us and everything else at last. And we ask this and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.